Hello, my name is Paul Kearney. I'm a professor of politics and public policy. And this is a series of short podcasts to accompany my series of blog posts, which introduce key public policy concepts and theories in 1,000 words. So this post is on um, punctuated equilibrium theory associated with Baumgartner and Jones. Now, I think the best way to, to introduce that is to talk about the sort of effect they're trying to describe. So they would say that policy making can appear to be stable for long periods only to be destabilised profoundly. So, that's, that's, so focus on that, that's, that's policy making stability and instability. Or most policies can stay the same for long periods while a, sum, a small number change quickly and dramatically. So that's policy continuity or, or major change. Or you might focus on you know, policy change in one issue, minimal for decades, followed by a, you know, a so-called punctuation, which produces a profound change, sets policy in an entirely new direction. So that's what they're trying to describe and explain, you know, to, to measure, describe, explain these long periods of policy-making stability and policy continuity, which are disrupted by you know, these short but profound intense periods instability which which can help produce major policy change. So one way to help explain this is to go into its key content, concepts which I which I list in the, the the post itself. So the first is bounded rationality which you'll find in almost all discussions of these policy theories. So in this case the way you would describe it is you would say policymakers cannot consider all problems and solutions at all times. In fact, they can only consider a tiny proportion of the responsibilities. So what they have to do by necessity is to is to pay attention to a small number disproportionately and um, ignore almost all of the rest. That's the that's the effect, that's the agenda setting effect of bounded rationality. The second concept then is disproportionate attention. So Policymakers have to ignore issues and they pay uh, an unusual or disproportionate amount of attention to others. Now, this, this basic, simple effect helps explain, for example, why most policies may not change. You know, if, if policymakers pay no attention to almost all policies, they may not change. Or you get this disproportionate attention, which produces these intensive periods in which this new attention can prompt new ways to understand and seek to solve old problems. The next concept which we'll talk about in a separate podcast too is, is power and agenda setting. So some groups are trying to maintain their privileged position by exploiting bounded rationality, minimizing the attention of policymakers to you know a, a small number of problems or minimising attention to the solutions that most benefit them. Now, others seek to expand attention or shift it to encourage new audiences, new participants to generate debate and new action. Now, they describe that as a kind of, yeah, in terms of Schatzschneider. So we'll talk about this in power, where, where Schatzschneider described this idea that some people benefit from privatising decisions, keeping them quiet, keeping attention low. Some groups trying to challenge positions um, benefit from socialising decisions, you know, making them the uh, responsibility of government. 
generating attention, focusing your attention. The next concept, which is the subject of a separate post, is framing. So this is, uh, you know, it's worth looking at that post, you know, even right now, to, to see how uh, the different ways in which we, we talk about framing. Now in this case, we're talking about, for example, groups competing to influence how a problem is framed, which in this case means how it's understood, how people define it, how they try and categorise and measure it. Because the, you know, the way you frame or understand the problem influences how policymakers try to solve it. Now, often uh, what the Baumgartner and Jones would study is, is, is issues that were framed as problems that had been solved. So there had been a huge rise of attention to an issue, you know, like energy or you know, a lack of um, food production. And this problem was solved by things like nuclear power or pesticides. And as, as soon as they could frame it as solved, they could say, well, you know, uh, attention can, can dip. Just leave the technical details, the implementation to experts. On the other hand, you can get, you know, uh, issues that are framed as a, a crisis. And that, you know, if successful, that would help generate widespread attention and possibly immediate action. The next concept that they, they used to talk about much more than they do now is, is this idea of a policy monopoly. And it can mean two things. Um, one is in terms of ideas, so they can enjoy a monopoly of understandings. So that describes when you know, policymakers or the public or media accept a particular way to frame an issue for long periods. And you know, in other posts we talk about you know, things being paradigmatic or you know, hegemonic, so they're kind of ideas that are, you know, so ingrained they're taken for granted. And, you know, you say that this monopoly of, of a way of thinking might be institutionalised when, when rules are created around that way of thinking and resources devoted to organisations trying to solve the problem as defined in that sense. So if you can monopolise the way in which people understand these issues, you can monopolise, you know, the ways in which they try and solve it. Then the final main concept is, is venue shopping. And it, it, it describes the strategy of particular groups, you know, relatively excluded groups, who are trying to challenge a monopoly in one venue. So let's say you have a, a venue such as the, you know, around the executive, or one type of government, and they have a, you know, an entrenched way of thinking about an issue. Groups might try and uh, you know venue shop to seek an an audience in another venue, you know, legislature, a court, another type of government, you know, to shift the ways in which you know key actors try and understand these issues. Now, it's interesting to look at the you know two different ways in which Baumgart and Jones have tried to um, look at those issues in some more depth. So they started off with a you know, relatively in-depth focus on particular case studies. So. In the original book, Agendas and Instability, they, they used case studies to examine you know, things like nuclear power, pesticides, the environment, tobacco and such like. So if you take the example of post-war nuclear power, so they identified this, this, this significant period of major public attention and it was on a sort of a crisis of energy, the need to solve a problem of you know, insufficient energy security or potentially high energy prices. Um, then, you know, when nuclear power was solved successfully as a solution, then for decades, you know, the problem appeared to be solved and public attention dipped. 
so um, you know, so you know, public enthusiasm, pol uh, government enthusiasm was for nuclear power as a solution to you know several problems. So it could help reduce energy bills, minimise dependence on other countries for energy such as oil, possibly reduce the air pollution associated with burning you know oil coal. Um, you know, and boost employment and economic activity. So it was a solution to many problems. And it had a positive image in the post-war period. There was this general sense that the problem was solved, and it helped produce this post-war policy monopoly, which involved uh, you know, a focus on experts and organisations implementing policy. Um, so most attention fell. The details were left to you know, private sector companies, experts, federal agencies, congressional committees. And it was only from the 1970s that you saw a challenge to that monopoly position. So following, for example, environmental activism and, crucially, scientific concern about nuclear safety within the industry. So, you know, groups used this new negative portrayal of nuclear to generate concern. And if they had no success in one venue, they tried it out. You know, they tried those strategies out in different venues. They they appealed to the courts, they looked to different congressional committees, and they were able to harness public attention, you know, particularly following a major accident, the you know, so-called Three Mile Island accident. So in that sense, you know, the monopoly in terms of the way in which nuclear power was framed was destroyed. Okay. Then this new negative image became the dominant way of thinking for decades. So that post-war policy of power plant expansion was suddenly replaced by this moratorium and then high regulation. And, and that you know, new way of thinking has only recently become challenged as nuclear power again becomes a serious possibility. So that first approach was a sort of case study approach. And if, if you look at the agendas and instability, look at you know, the rise and fall of attention measured by things like you know, newspaper coverage, and congressional coverage of particular issues. Then you've got this separate, more quantitative approach in the politics of attention. This time, uh, Jones and Baumgartner are trying to focus on a more general observation, again based on bounded rationality and selective attention. So um, they say you know, n not only uh, are policymakers unable to focus on many issues, in some cases they're unwilling to focus on them you know, for ideological pragmatic reasons. You know, some solutions may be too unpopular to consider within their party or within the public. Others simply an established view within government about how to deal with issues. Then they're unable, you know, bounded and irrational, unable to pay attention because you know, have to ignore 99 issues if you focus on one. So they talk about this necessity uh, you know, for change. It requires this critical mass of attention to overcome those kinds of issues, or the conserv the con the conservatism of decision makers. You know, how do you shift their attention from competing problems? Then they talk about this idea of you know that a kind of pressure dam effect. You know, if this level of external pressure reaches a tipping point, it can cause these major but unfrequent punctuations, rather than you know smaller, more regular policy changes. So you see, there's a kind of self-reinforcing process. A burst of attention, communication. New approaches become considered in different venues. Policymakers attach different weights to the same kinds of information. Policy might be driven by new actors with new beliefs. 
and you know this issue might spark off new conflicts. So what they describe is this uh, you know, key outcome from bounded rationality and this, and this you know, sort of institutional process. They describe it as stasis interrupted by bursts of innovation. And they, they describe um, you know, policy responses as unpredictable, episodic, rather than continuous. So it's worth it's worth looking at the way in which they, they represent this visually. So you know, one of the best examples is when they chart uh, annual changes in budgets. Now, what they say is they compare uh, this budget process with uh, the discussion we had in a separate post about incrementalism. So they say, you know, if the budget process is incremental, you would expect to see this normal distribution of cases. Uh, you know, so ninety-five percent of cases within two standard deviations. So you can. You can look up that kind of discussion in more depth. What they find instead is that you have eff effectively hyper-incrementalism in most cases. So in most cases, the budget changes by almost zero. But then you've got this uh, small number of huge changes in budgets. So this is you know, the, the two processes. You've got a huge number of small changes and a small number of huge changes. All the effect of these processes to describe you know, bounded rationality and I can, uh, you know, what they describe as friction within political systems. Now, a final point to note is that that you know they, they describe a more kind of abstract, universal effect. So, particularly in that second case, they expect that same basic process to be apparent in you know lots of cases, lots of countries. So, their initial assumption, you know, back in the nineties, was that they were doing case study research of particular processes in the U.S. But now the focus is on these abstract universal concepts, you know, bounded rationality, selective attention. You know, what do they produce? These same, these same outcomes. So it's a good way to help us balance a focus on specific territorial processes and general universal ones. And so where do you go from there? I mean, what I would say is. Um, there's still there's, there's increasing debate about the extent to which these concepts do travel that far, and there's a there's a there's a, a debate on the comparative agendas project that looks at you know what sort of compromises or decisions you have to make when you're applying concepts that started off as a focus on the U.S. system towards you know lots of other countries across the globe. Okay, thank you.